Amen. Please be seated. Thank you. I'd like to introduce to you Alex Pettit. He is the director of World Witness, our denomination's missions board organization. He'll be also, as you heard earlier, I hope, speaking in the Sunday school. If We'd like to encourage you all to stick around and to be able to meet Alex and to see something of the breadth of what we are doing in the world. I also mentioned that he used to live in Horatio Spafford's home in Jerusalem. Anybody know the name Horatio Spafford? He was the author of? Anyone know? It is well with my soul, of course. That is, that is exactly right. I didn't actually know until he mentioned it that Horatio Spafford was a missionary to Israel. And uh, as uh, Alex used to also live in Israel as a missionary, it turned out to be in the same home that uh, they're still using to hold forth the word of life. Anyway, enough about the, the background. He's also uh, a man of God coming to bring the word to us. Thank you so much, Alex. Good morning. Thank you for that. Yeah, there's, there's very few people that know that. I didn't even know it at the time until we found out the history lesson later that it was Horatio Spafford's home. It was this beautiful old mansion made of stone. Uh, we got to live there for just four years when I was young and single, um, working with Jewish people. I was doing an MA at Hebrew University, uh, and my wife at the time didn't know it, was doing a BA in Islamic studies. So we met in the Middle East had three children all born in the Middle East. I'm sorry they couldn't be here today, but it's also in the Middle East that actually I became convinced of something. It was, um, it was a child b- baptism because I would watch people go through the covenant of circumcision, friends of mine who were Jews circumcising their children, and I got to see the beauty of the covenant as is defined and understood uh, through the New Testament. So thank you for blessing me this morning already with seeing a full baptism hearing uh, two good deliveries of the word. I feel like we could just say amen and go home, but we got some time to fill, so we'll do it by preaching the word of God as is good and right, uh, and really building on everything that's already been said so far. I, Warren, you spoke briefly on Isaiah 49, especially verse 6 is one of the biggest heart verses for me. It's too light a thing that you should raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel. I will make you as a light to the nation, that my salvation shall reach the ends of the earth. That is in the, Old, in the New Testament, and I was read by uh, Pastor David. The culmination of that happened at Pentecost, and the understanding of that happened out throughout the rest of Paul's epistles all the way into uh, the, the revelation of John. So this morning, we get to pick up an understanding of Paul, of this great mystery that he writes about to the Ephesians. This letter was a well-circulated letter at the time. It wouldn't have just been to those in Ephesus. It would have been to those uh, beyond Ephesus as well, but that certainly is the group that he seems to be focusing on in the letter. It's, it's a prison letter of Paul, and he's understanding the people of Ephesus are in a pagan culture. There's a challenge to them that feels physical by temple architecture being all around them, but is also very clearly spiritual, as is seen through all of Ephesians, especially Ephesians 6, when our battle is not with flesh and blood, with against the you know, dark powers, the principalities over this world who reign over this present darkness. Kind of messed that up. But you know what I'm saying. It's a very spiritual aspect that he's trying to help them navigate through, that life isn't all about stone idols. There's a darkness occurring uh, that's woven throughout, but there is great light that fights it. We're going to read Ephesians chapter, starting in chapter 2, 
And then moving all the way through 3, so it's going to be 2.18, which is the preamble that you need to understand before we get into the revelation of the mystery. And then the middle section there is him explaining what the mystery is in the cost, the suffering of the revelation mystery. And finally, this beautiful benediction of spiritual prayer for strength for the people and a, an a eruption of praise for who God is. So let's read 2.18 through 3. For through him we have both access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple of the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for, for God by the Spirit. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have briefly written. When you read this, you can, be cer- you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has been now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The mystery is this, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister, According to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power, to me, though I'm the very least of saints, this grace was given to preach the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is in the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you, therefore, not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant to you be strengthened with power through the Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend what is all the saint, with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more than abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all the generations, forever and ever. Amen. I mentioned the preamble in 18 through uh, 22. I love the opening there. We have access to the Father so that we are no longer aliens and strangers. If you've ever been through middle school and walked into a middle school lunchroom, or if you've even been in a co-op program and you walk into a group of strange children, even if you maybe know one or two, you feel so out of place. Who am I going to sit next to? Who's going to make space for me? Am I going to, God forbid, try to start my own table? And will, will others come sit with me as well? It still happens sometimes when you walk in the door of a church, or even I think we go to a fellowship setting. Everybody kind of waits, who am I going to talk to? There's hesitation. Do I have acceptance where I am? When we lived overseas, uh, you feel out of place constantly. One of the places we lived was Turkey, 
And in Turkey, we were situated in a small town called Mardin, uh, about 50 miles north of the Syrian border. And we were, uh, other than one couple that lived across the other side of the city, we were the only Americans in our region. And one day, um, we had to get tur- curtains made. For some reason, everybody needed homemade curtains. If you were there, you had to have curtains. When you walk in, people admire your curtains. That's how nice curtains. Whew, okay, pass the test. I don't know what it is here. Uh, Virginia, nice, be- you know, but maybe deerskin rug or something like that. <laughs> so we had these nice curtains, and it uh, took a while to make them. And we went to pick them up, and we got an invoice. You know, they'd filled out our invoice for us. And we just picked it up, and I looked at the name. You know, what name had they written for us? And the name was the Americans. <laughs> Another place that I felt very out of place was years before we'd lived in Israel. And there's a neighborhood called Me'a Shalim, which is about a mile and a half from the old city of Jerusalem. Have you ever been there? It's a city of, with many hills and the, the old cities, this sprawling uh, city surrounded by this, this wall that was really only built not, not too long ago, just back in the early 1900s. But in the old city, of course, it's the Temple Mount. And this neighborhood of Orthodox Jew called Me'a Shalim, or a thousand gates, is it, or a hundred gates as it's called, is the most ultra-Orthodox neighborhood, I think, in all of Israel. And you walk into it just for an experience of what it's like to be an alien and a stranger. I remember my wife and I one day just decided to venture through it. And within seconds, we went from passing street traffic of secular people, Orthodox Jewish people, Muslims, uh, all sort people from all nations, Ethiopians. You step almost over a dividing line in this neighborhood and immediately you're out of place. Everyone had a black hat on, beards, ringlets, or little kids had ringlets, white shirt with what's called tifalim, or these little prayer uh, beads, that, or prayer shawl tassels, that's what they're called, right? Prayer tassels that were sticking out. Women were wearing wigs because their real hair couldn't be exposed as Orthodox Jews, or they were wearing head covering. You had uh, clothes coming to the sleeves for all the women, of course, uh, long skirts that went down almost to the ground. Here, my wife and I, I'm walking through with, you know, khakis and a polo and my head uncovered. My wife's probably, hopefully, I don't remember if she had shorts on or what, but we got just a little ways in the neighborhood and a lady just comes up and goes, are you lost? (laughs) (laughs) And we said, no, we're just looking around. She's like, oh, well, do you know where you are? I said, yes, we're in She goes, oh, that's right. And and here's a synagogue and here's a synagogue and here, you know, and so she didn't talk us out of the neighborhood, but we just, we couldn't stay in there. We couldn't stand there because it was so intensely uncomfortable because we were such aliens and strangers in their midst. This is what it looked like for a, Jew, for a, a non-Jew to like visit a group of Jews, that, that feeling in the Old Testament of being completely out of place. What was really sad to me is that these were supposed to be my brothers and sisters in Christ, and yet they have shot right past the Old Testament and have continued an ancient style of temple worship that is no longer even rooted in the Old Testament. It's rooted in what's called rabbinic uh, teachings, but these could have been my brothers and sisters in Christ, and yet I am still an alien stranger in their midst. And what's interesting as well is a mile and a half walk from there, you can go over to what's called the Temple Mount. Now, the second temple uh, built of the Temple of God is the temple for the Jews at one, during one era built by Herod the Great over a period of 46 years. It's a massive structure. On top of it now sits the two, two, uh, one mosque and one commemoration called the Dome of the Rock. You've seen that big golden dome. I won't go into that. But on the side wall, it's called the Western Wall. So the Jews are worshiping at this, what used to be this great temple on the side wall. And on top, the Muslims more or less control that area. That was to be 
the ultimate place for Jews to come to worship. And it has still a massive architectural feat. If you go over to what's called the cornerstone on the western wall, where the southern wall and the western wall meet, you can go pretty much down almost to the base of it, and you're standing next to this giant slab of a rock. I wrote down the measurements. It's 39 feet long, 7 feet wide, and 43 inches high. It weighs 500 tons. That's a million pounds. It's not like a million pounds. That's a million pounds. And it had to be cut absolutely perfectly or else the temple would be built crooked because the cornerstone's purposes is, one, to make sure that every other stone that is laid is measured by that stone and so the whole temple will not become wonky and fall over. And the other reason is it has to be hard, it has to be dense, it has to be thick, it has to be without fissures because a disproportionate amount of the temple weight sits squarely on that stone. And if you see where I'm going with this, we see that that cornerstone mentality that even Ephesians would have, not being far from the temple of Artemis, one of the seven ancient wonders of the world in the town of Ephesus, even had cornerstones. And so you think of who Christ is and the weight he bears. Now, the people of Israel originally were supposed to be the people that were, in a sense, the cornerstone built on the law, but they couldn't keep it. So as they continued to descend into sin, after sin, the temple of who God's people were just became wonky and grew aside and askew. And they were not a people who were, who were able to f- sit under the weight of God's glory again because of sin, and it would just crush them. And so it, they crumbled as a people and were sent into exile. So the law, the following of the law, could not be the cornerstone. It had to be grace through Jesus Christ. So he became the strong cornerstone that bears the weight of God's holiness in lieu of our sin and also is that which builds a structure of the household of God that now encompasses something brand new. You. Unless you're Jewish. I don't know. There may be some Messianic Jews in here. It encompasses you as a Gentile. You are built as part of that foundation. You sit on the cornerstone of Christ himself into a great house. The mystery in Isaiah 49.6, I think, was, okay, the Jews were supposed to be, gather the nations in, or God was going to gather the nations in with the Jews. How was that going to happen? But based on the law, it was not possible. It was done through grace by faith in Jesus Christ. So that brings us to then chapter 3. For this reason, because you now are part of this household, for this reason. What is he getting ready to say? He's getting ready to say the reason. Now, most of us stick to the middle meat of this section, and you should, and that's good. The grace of Christ, the immeasurable riches of who God is, all of that's good. But what is Paul addressing here? He's addressing a concern they have. That concern is brought out in the very first sentence. For this reason, I am a prisoner on behalf of of you Gentiles. That's why he's doing it. He's on their behalf. Another way you could read this is, God put me in prison on your behalf. Or, I am God's prisoner in prison. Or, God himself put this into me for your sake. Because you too are a part of the family of God. For this reason, Paul's experiencing joyful suffering, which is payment for the gospel. 
You see, in verse 13, you go down and he says, I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. It's interesting that Paul bookends this section with, I'm a prisoner for Gentiles, I'm suffering for you, which is for your glory. That's a weird thing to say, isn't it? Wouldn't you expect him to say, for God's glory? That's, that's why I'm being in prison? How could their glory be somehow magnified as a result of Paul being in prison for them? And commentators, frankly, disagree about this. I was not able to get a very strong consensus on that. And we're going to hit another, even a bigger conundrum towards the end. But what we know is that their glorification happens in their eternal dwelling before God. So I would equate this with the immeasurable riches found in Christ revealed by the manifold wisdom through the church. So it is their eternal life that is coming as a result of this is what, these, is what their glory is in this. But how are they, what, what, is the, what does it mean then to suffer? How is that payment for the gospel? When the gospel is preached, there's always opposition by the evil one to prevent it. This may result in imprisonment like Andrew Brunson. How many of y'all, have y'all heard Andrew Brunson? A little bit? Good, good, good. This will make this a little bit easier later on. And many of it's like Andrew Brunson was imprisoned as a persecution for wanting to overthrow the Turkish government. You remember, even through the New Testament, even Jesus was crucified for preaching derision potentially against the Roman government. Now, the Roman government capitulated to the wishes of the Jews at the time, but this is kind of how it was couched. It's never just like, you love Jesus, so we're going to crucify you. No, it's always couched in terms of, you're bringing a usurping power in here. And that's what was thought of Andrew Brunson. And there was great opposition to that usurping power, which was Jesus Christ. But, you know, sometimes it can be much simpler. We're not going to spend all the time talking about persecution because I realize that we ourselves don't run the risk of imprisonment. I don't, I don't think, at least not for the right reasons uh, for most of us in here, right? So when we think of God, Paul being persecuted, also know that when you bring the gospel even in simple ways to your own communities, watch how Satan just springs up anxiety in your life, anxiety about acceptance. Even, even medical things can sometimes occur as a result of spiritual attacks in your life. And we'll talk about how that looks a little bit later. But Satan will utterly oppose the preaching of the gospel, and suffering is often the price we pay for the glory of others that they may know. And this is what Paul is trying to communicate with them. Secondly, for this reason, Paul is joyfully suffering to receive sanctification from the gospel. Not long ago, I went to see an eye doctor. You see me doing this. I was trying to figure out if I could fix doing that. I can't. Apparently, readers are just what I'm... I'm 48, now I use readers, and i got to take them on and off. It's almost like a tick. But <clears throat> when Paul, Paul, when I went to the eye doctor, who's not Paul, I went to the eye doctor and asked for some help, and he, he knew quickly I was a believer, he asked a few kind of probing questions, and then he, then he started talking politics, and I don't know if your eye doctor talks politics with you, but I don't particularly, I'm, I'm there for my eyes, I don't want to discuss politics with him, but he quickly uh, just kind of blurted out, he said, do you, when do you think this government is going to start arresting us for being Christians? It's going to happen soon. And I said, no, no, I don't think so. I think we're good for a good while. And I, I gave my reasons. We can talk about those reasons uh, during our fellowship hour. Uh, if you like, you can disagree with me. But I don't think our government is going to very quickly start arresting us for professing our faith or trying to overthrow the government. Um, but then I thought, you know what, maybe, maybe that's not the worst thing. We know that the two fastest growing churches proportionately on earth are one, we talked about last night, David, right? The fastest growing church on earth exists in the country of, anybody? Anybody? 
Ah, no, it was China. It's Iran now. Good. It's Iran. They're the largest growing church, period, Chinese church. In other words, not proportional. That's kind of a trick question. I didn't mean to. That was kind of tricky, right? You really got it right, right? So the fastest growing church, period, number-wise, is China. Proportionally, it's Iran. Anybody number two? This one's going to blow your socks off even more. Afghanistan. Yeah. So in these two areas, you have massive persecution alongside massive gospel proclamation. What is it about that? What, what, cause, what, what is it about persecution that erupts the gospel forth? And what could that mean for America? I don't know. <clears throat> Suffering often causes rapid, rapid sanctification, which makes people bold for the gospel and to see the glory of God come through the church. Paul understands how difficulties lead to sanctification. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, that the power of Christ would rest me. Therefore, I am content in Christ in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecution, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And notice the words... He always says persecution one time. We, we look at the New Testament. It is, a, it is a context of persecution, no doubt, flat out. However, Paul also says weaknesses. Who has weaknesses in here? Insults. Who has had, who's been insulted in here? Hardships. Anybody got hardships? No? Good. All right. Calamity. I mean, is it, are we not experiencing a global calamity right now? The hardships of this life are the catalysts that prepare us for the glory of the next life. And when those catalysts trigger, that sanctification rises, we see the gospel pour forth, as it is in Afghanistan, in Iran, in China, in so many areas of persecution. Let me balance that by saying, and hear me clearly, we don't invite suffering. You don't need to go home and start praying that God would make your family suffer so you become more sanctified. I do not believe that is a prayer that God... He, he might honor it, but that's just kind of weird. Let's don't do that. Let's understand, though, that it comes regardless. We may not invite it, but we should still prepare for it. I read an article recently in the Gospel Coalition. It's very short. It was a mother writing about prayers for her children. And she used to pray as I still do, which is not a wrong or bad thing, that they would be protected, that they would be safe. Uh, I travel a lot for my job. The prayer that I pray for my kids, keep them safe while I'm gone. And that's not a bad thing. It's all, I also tell them, I give them what's called the big speech, which is, uh, read your Bible, love Jesus, marry a Christian. Say it with me. Read your Bible, love Jesus, marry a Christian. Like, okay, that, they said last night, I was leaving. And he goes, Dad, you're going for one night. You don't have to give the big speech. And I said, okay. See, I'm still going to give you the big speech. All right. So, but the woman instead started pray, based off a prayer book, which I don't remember what she was, what she was praying through at the time. She, she began to pray that her children would learn to suffer well. Because if it's promised in John 16, that in this life we will have tribulation, if that's a promise, then we need to learn how to prepare to suffer this life well. So I've added that to my big speech a little bit. I haven't tried to explain it yet to them, but I has tweaked their ears. Wait, wait suffer well? Wait, what's going to happen? 
nothing. I'm just practicing this down to you guys. So it has shaped my life a little bit in terms of the big speech. As Americans, we often fear suffering. The main question that I get when coming back here from a trip or living overseas from America, it's a very good question. It shows they care. It was, was it safe over there, right? That's what everyone wants to know. Were you safe? Uh, anybody know Maslow's hierarchy of needs? It's this, it's this scale that ends, I think, in, terminates in uh, self-actualization, which is the idea if you have all these needs met in your life, then you can become the highest potential of yourself that you can ever be. And, and we, we don't believe in self-actualization. We believe in God-glorification. But the very first in Maslow's hierarchy of needs that a man needs is the basic need of survival, which is shelter and warmth so they don't freeze to death in a short period of time. And then comes food and, or water, and then comes food, and then comes uh, love, and then comes education. And then you kind of build up, build up, build up so you can fully realize who you are. And that is often what dictates our own lens by which we understand and prioritize importance in our lives. But the gospel subverts Maslow's hierarchy of needs by asking not the first question of what do you need to do to preserve your life, but what do you need to give glory to God's life? So, that's the, so under shelter and under other things is the first question of how is today going to glorify God? How do you orient yourself and even put yourself into harm's way against the better judgment of extended family members perhaps? Because you understand the need for the gospel to go forth unto the nations is what increases worship to give glory. We're not here to get God perfect worship. We just say that we need to have purity of worship, but we want God's worship increased. And that comes through gospel proclamation unto the nations. Sometimes, though, and if you hear this from a sermon, I think if I ended right now, uh, you'd feel a little bit uh, defeated. I- I'm not going to be arrested, you know, anytime soon, as I said earlier. I don't know that this great calamity called COVID is going to last a lot longer. It may end. I- we don't know. But it's easy to talk about suffering from a pulpit. You're the ones experiencing it. I mean, I'm experiencing it in some way as well. <clears throat> because sometimes you don't feel joyful during suffering. Sometimes pain, emotional pain and anguish breaks the mind in such a way that you can have no conceivable thought other than, God, let the pain stop. And sometimes it's just enough to endure it. That's part of the process. Paul identified a process. Romans 5.3, we rejoice in sufferings, know that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love is poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Um, when Andrew Brunson was in prison, he was depressed. He was anxious. I believe at one point he was suicidal. If you've ever read his book, I think it's called God's Hostage or God's Prisoner or something like that. I forget the exact title you'll see a picture of darkness that'll drag your soul down. It's tough to read. He lays it bare. He was not right. He was even felt doubly guilty because he wasn't writing with the clarity of joy that Paul had. But remember, we don't know about Paul. Some, after he got 
almost, you know, was almost beat to death however many times. You think he got up and blood dripping, oh, this was awesome, I just love this, you know, this is for you. No, we don't know what despair was ever in his life. Was there any? We don't know. But we do know that there's a, there's a process, and it begins with endurance. So Andrew's job in prison that day was simply to endure for those two years. And now on the other side of it, if you talk to him about it, he, last time I spoke to him was just about a year, year, year and a half ago. And when he would bring it up, it was still right here. Have you ever had something, that, a topic so sensitive that to even speak about it just causes a well of tears? So he still has a lot of sensitive to it. But you can tell the type of character that that's building in him. So we don't know what would happen during the next imprisonment. We hope, he hopes there's never another imprisonment, of course. But we know that these kind of things build in our, like, like, like layers of mountains till eventually one day we don't self-actualize. We God-glorify even through our sufferings. Um, I wasn't sure I was going to share this, but in talking to uh, the Vances this morning, I thought it might be, might be appropriate. Um, in 2015, uh, I was in Louisville, Kentucky at a missions conference. It was just me and a couple staff members, and Heiko Berklin, who works in our office, is just a wonderful, lovely man. And went out for a run, and uh, <clears throat> a mile or two into the run, I started feeling dizzy, almost fell over, and uh, it felt really awful. Real, I'd never felt like this. So odd. It just felt very odd. It felt like I was kind of outside myself. Went back to the hotel, putzed around a little bit, called my wife, who's a nurse. And she goes, well, keep an eye on it. And I said, sure, I kept an eye on it. And then uh, started having chest pains. I'm like, oh, chest pains. I've heard those are bad. Uh, <clears throat> so I called an Uber. Uber got me to the hospital. I was too embarrassed to tell him I was going to the emergency room. I was telling him um, uh, I didn't want him to freak out, so he dropped me off. At, he didn't know where the entrance was, so I ended up having to walk around the hospital in the middle of the night because of my pride. And I finally got there, and, and it was, it's a long story, but short story. The cardiologist, after hours of tests, says you, your mitral valve is ruptured. Um, were, you, were you aware of this? And I was like, I was not. because did you know you had a heart defect? I said, I did not. And he said, well, it's ruptured, and we've got to put you in surgery in 24 hours. And I was like, you know, I'd, I'd really rather go home for this. I'd rather be around my family. Can I, can I jump on a plane? He goes, sure, you could, but you, you, you might not make it. But you could try that if you want, like. I'm like, oh, you drive a hard bargain? Sure, I'll do it here. So, so I did it there. Those 24 hours were excruciating. I am so glad I was not writing to anybody in this church. You would have just seen darkness and despair. I was freaking out. All the trust I felt like I had in the Lord was just gone. I wanted to see my kids. I wanted to see my wife. Was I ever going to see them again? Even Heiko came in to the doctor or said to somebody, I've never seen him like this before. Suffering can break the mind sometimes. Sometimes it's just enough to endure. And after uh, weeks of postpartum, uh, let's press the pregnancy thing, post-surgery, <laughs> depression. So that's all you're going to remember from now on, isn't it? He had postpartum depression. So we were talking about this, and that's what made me think about it. Um, not that she had it. Someone else, I forget. Anyways, this, let's, we're off the rails a little bit. I had... I had, as often happens after heart surgery, you, have a, you go through a series of, of depression. Nobody knows why. And I'd never experienced any sort of mental illness that I was aware of. Others probably thought I was mentally ill, but I didn't know it at the time. I felt like the worst thing in the world. I couldn't have a joyful thought if it saved my life. And eventually one day it just released and lifted. And I found a whole new community of people suffering mentally that would, I would share about this in some context. And they would just come up and talk. 
Because we endure this life not alone. Remember, too, Paul was writing in a context where there was church members who were able to likely visit him, bring him food. Andrew Brunson was completely isolated. The nation of his people who loved him were mostly over here praying for him. But he felt so isolated. Paul had people. You have each other. You have the church. You have the full revelation of the manifold wisdom of God in each other. You can compassion, which is co-suffer with each other. This is one of the ways you bear up under these times of just plain endurance. Sometimes you have to be the joy for others for them. Don't be like, cheer up, be happy, nothing like that. But you listen to them. You, Galatians 6, 2, carry each other's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ. You don't see many laws being espoused in the New Testament, like follow this law. Paul says, a law of Christ, you bear burdens among each other. So that's what you are and that's what you do as the church. That is how you co-suffer. That is how you co-celebrate who God is. You bear under each other's burdens. And all of this brings us to the final section, this beautiful benediction where all of a sudden Paul's writing. I'm wondering if he's writing going, I've just spoken to them about some very hard things. They're going to have to suffer for their faith, that the grace of God would be revealed, that this mystery that the Gentiles would come in in full measure. Now they need some prayer, they need some supplication here. So I'm going to intervene for them with this very strong prayer and give them a vision of something that will be too hard to comprehend, that they will need the spiritual strength of the Holy Spirit to open their mind to it. It will blow their mind so that they can take their mind off themselves and put it all squarely on God for the glory of others during these times of persecution. Let's talk about what that mind-blowing thing is. For this reason, I bow my knees, verse 14, for the Father, for whom every family on earth and heaven is named, that according to the riches of glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, here comes the key one, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what are the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of of God. This is a frustrating part, this, this whole section right here of, of verse 18. You know why it's so frustrating? There's no object. It doesn't say that you may be filled with the height and the breadth and the depth and, and these things. We don't know what he's talking about. It's, un, it's, it's not clearly that. Scholars don't shout their answer in this one because they themselves disagree on exactly what is meant by this beautiful, magnificent, measureless measurements of what? I'll give you two theories of what it is. I'll give you my first, which is my favorite, uh, but is a minor view, and then I'll give you the majority view. I think when he referred to measurements, he too had architecture in mind. When you think of length, height, width, you might be thinking of building a house, but for the people who had the seventh great wonder of the world, or one of the ancient wonders of the world, the, the temple to the goddess Artemis, this massive temple that was like a football field long, sitting just down the way, wouldn't you have thought of some finite measures of a temple? And certainly the temple of Jerusalem, which is about four times as big as the temple of Artemis, would have come to mind as this household. Because remember back in 2.18, we have Paul talking about the cornerstone of Christ. This temple imagery is already existing there. So could it be that these measurements are an infinite measurement of the household of God? And how inclusive it is for all those who believe. John uh, 12.3, for all those who believe. That's who's included in this household of God. So it's a giant, magnificent picture of something that is infinitely large, which is God's family. And infinity 
it's such a hard thing to describe or imagine. You know, I think of infinite, I look up, I think of outer space. And you have had these moments, if you have kids, your child asks you, wow, Dad, stars, yeah, how far away are they? Ooh, really far. <laughs> you know, how many are there? Lots, lots and lots and lots. You can't answer these questions. Maybe an astrophysicist even can't answer these, these questions. The numbers, I guess, go so... I'm sorry, if there's an astrophysicist in here, and you've known how many stars there are, that I'd like to know that later on. But for the most of us, it is absolutely incomprehensible. And we're okay with that sense of wonder. What would you think... My wife and I were talking about this tonight. What would you think if you knew there was an edge of space that had a wall? Would that freak you out? Like, just beyond two solar systems, there was a wall, and you couldn't get past it. The first thing you would ask is, well, what's on the other side? It is, it is more difficult and more frightening to think about the comprehensive finite end than it is the wonderment of the infinite. That is why when we look to space, we see a measure, not the fullness of, we get a glimpse, not the entire picture of this attribute of God, his infinity, which is both his eternity and his immensity together that just goes on forever. The major view of what these measurements are follow in the phrase that come right after them, the surpassing love of Jesus Christ. This is the infinite aspect of God that he calls us to. And this is why in times of suffering, we are asked to press up and press in. Not that God's up there. When you say look up for the benediction, do y'all say look up for the benediction? You might not say look up. But if you looked up for the benediction, I don't look at the pastor. I look above. Realizing that God's not just in the ceiling, not just in the atmosphere, but he is all around. He's into infinity itself. So in a time of measuring, time of suffering, measure that. Measure God's love in your life, looking out to the end. And if you're here today... And all of this makes no sense to you. Suffering is a finite thing that's going to end at the end of this life and it's terminating to nothingness. Then I would invite you today to understand who Jesus Christ is. He is the very Son of God, made man, lived the perfect life to fulfill the law that Moses' law could not fulfill. Took your sin upon him, died upon the cross so that it is buried in the ground. And then he rose on the third day from the dead. Why? To become your cornerstone so that you could become part of the family of God. He bears your burdens. He bears the weight of God's holiness for your sake. He bears the, the fire of God's wrath that you would not experience it for your sake. And for those who repent and believe in him and believe in this, welcome home. There's no terminable end of this world. There is termination of suffering. In this life, you will have tribulation. We have the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit with which whom we will dwell for all eternity. And you guys right here at Dean Mary Pete, you're going to be part of all that. So as you look to that together, co-suffer with each other. Co-proclaim with each other. Take what is going to come as a disciple of Christ looking to an end that will never come for his people, for his glory. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you that we are a church together part of something even bigger than this church, Redeemer, bigger than the ARPs. We have the church invisible that we co-suffer with, that we co-love you with. And I pray that this church would have this day a double measure of desire to proclaim your gospel to the
ends of the earth, not inviting suffering, but knowing it will come, and then taking that and turning to the stars and to the sky to view just a glimpse of the eternity which we will spend with you forever. Make us bold. Make us humble.